I know it's early around here, but we like to go hard, loud, and fast. And so we're going to jump right into the message today. How many of you, show of hands, have, uh, have really received something so far in these past just two weeks of this soul series that we've been in? Um, hopefully, if you haven't been able to catch these messages, you can hop onto our, uh, our YouTube, subscribe, check out the mas- messages from the past two weeks. Today is going to be the last kind of section in this series where we really go after the, the soul aspect of it. And then over the next uh, it'd be seven weeks, we're going to be digging into the practicalities of things, how this really fleshes itself out now in our mind, our will, our emotions, our behaviors. Um, we got some really cool messages coming up from Pastor Howie, Pastor Erica. Uh, I'm going to be digging into boundaries in a few weeks. Um, and so that'll be a lot of fun. Um, if you're like, I don't like boundaries, don't come to church that day. Um, I want to take us to Psalm 23 today. We read this last week, and now we're going to deal with the healing of our soul. We looked at the woundedness of our soul last week. Today, we're going to deal with the healing of it. How many of you, just straight out the gate, if we can just be transparent and honest today, how many of you would say, if you've taken the past few weeks, just assess where you're at, how many of you would say, I need some healing in my soul? Okay, I know that I do too. And so I don't speak from a pulpit of perfection today, but rather we submit humbly the word of God to you today. Psalm 23 verses one to six says this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. We talked about that last week, that that the idea of restoration of the soul The psalmist is helping us, presumably King David in this psalm right here, the psalmist is helping us understand that if God restores our soul, it means that there's been an acknowledgement of that the soul needs restoring. That there's something going on in the soul. But the other idea that this word presents to us is that not only does my soul need restoring and that God is the one who restores it, but the way that he lines it out is that the restoration of the soul is a process. Y'all with me this morning? It's It's a process. He leads me, we'll understand that more in just a second. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And surely in goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Today, as we continue on in our series, Shadows in the Light, I want to speak to you from this subject today. It's not an etch-a-sketch. It's not an etch-a-sketch as we deal with the restoration of our souls and how God really does this. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Father, we receive your word today with faith and expectation. And God, I ask right now that all of us with humility and patience would open our minds and our hearts to your your work today, that your word would transform us. God, that it would do the surgery necessary on our soul. Would you, would you shine your light on the dark places of our soul today? Those areas that have wounds, the areas that have hurt, and God, would you heal it today? We love you, we honor you, we praise you on this beautiful day today. God, would you do your good work in this place? In Jesus' mighty name, come on, and everybody shouted? Amen. And everybody shouted? Since hitting the store shelves on July 12, 1960, the Etch-A-Sketch has sold over 175 million units worldwide. Now, it may not connect to Wi-Fi or stream to a TV, but this little invention by Andre Kasangas has graced such lists as the National Toy Hall of Fame in 1998, the Toy Industry Association Century of Toys, in 2003, and Time Magazine's top 100 toys of all time. The allure and fascination that gave the Etch-A-Sketch such a valued stake in the market of toys is that the user could, as many of us have, shake the Etch-A-Sketch, erasing all the drawing and work that had been done, allowing the user to start over on their project. Before there were phones, kids, Many of hours on drive time 
on family road trips. We're done using this thing right here. Come on, how many of you fond memories come up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> done with the message, etch a sketch. <laughs> I remember this thing from when I was a kid, and, 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 and I don't know, some of you got pretty proficient at, at drawing on these things. Like, I had friends who could draw names and cityscapes. Come on, how many of you had that friend, right? And then how many of you were like me, where you'd grab it and you want to look at it, and then you'd shake it? <laughs> and if you've never used an Etch-a-Sketch before, the whole principle of this toy is to draw whatever you want, <clears throat> however you want to draw it. And if you messed up, if things went sideways on you, you just... Ah... Oh. And it was back to blank. And then I can once again start drawing what I, what I want to draw on it. See, when it comes to the issue of soul restoration and healing, this is how many of us believe it needs to happen. We believe that God takes us like an Etch-a-Sketch, shakes us, and then we are back to our original factory settings. And this actually couldn't be further from the truth. And I want to submit to us today, because of this belief, which I would say is an inaccurate belief, it is the cause of an incredible amount of frustration amongst those who are being introduced to Jesus, following Jesus, and being formed by Jesus. Because your soul and my soul is not an Etch-a-Sketch. As much as we want it to be, it's not. Here's the truth that we must grab a hold of today. And, I, and this is a simple truth, but I need you to write this down. If you don't write anything else down, write this down. You and I are not an Etch-a-Sketch. It took all of Bible college to figure this one out. <clears throat> as much as we wish it were, we are not. Our soul is not. The journey of spiritual formation and soul restoration is a journey of grace, empowerment, faith, and perseverance. Still, it is anything but quick and clean. And the reason that many of us avoid it is because of this fact. Many of us give up on allowing God to do what he wants to do in our lives because we don't like the idea of it being a process. How many of you agree with me? You're impatient. Right? I think it's, it's, it's something that resides in a lot of us. And if I'm honest with you, the greatest work that God has done in my life is first and foremost working on my patience so that he can do the thing that's going to take patience in my life. Many of us reverse the order though. We want God to chill out while we take the reins on our own life. How many of you have been there before? See, the restoration of our soul takes place as we, like King David in Psalm 23, 1 through 6, acknowledge who God is and what he does in our soul. There are actionable responsibilities that we must engage in, but soul restoration begins with our acknowledgement, first and foremost, of who God is and what he does. The reason that this doesn't take place in many of our lives and because we, we avoid it is because we don't want to give God the leadership that he needs to have in our life in order to restore our soul. Many of us believe that we are better at it than God is. So we try taking up our responsibility in the process without at first acknowledging and believing in who God is and what he first does in us. Dallas Willard writes this, without the gentle, though the regular, rigorous process of inner transformation initiated and sustained by the grace, graceful presence of God in our world and in our souls, the change of personality and life clearly announced and spelled out in the Bible and explained and illustrated throughout Christian history is impossible. This would be Jesus' announcement in John chapter 15, 1 to 5. He says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Either way, there's pruning. He says, you are, ready, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. You hear what's going on? Jesus is saying you can't produce anything unless you're connected to me. Yeah. Now he's going to double down. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Yes. I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Let's try it on this side over here. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Jason's not the vine, Jesus is the vine, okay? He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. 
I'm the vine, you're the branches. How many of you agree with me? We try to spin that though so that we become the vine and Jesus is the branch. We try to take over responsibility for everything and we go, Jesus, hey, like I know you're good and all, but I got this. You're the branch and I'm the vine. So Jesus doubles down again and this is what he says. He says, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. And now he's just gonna be very plain about it because you can do nothing without me. You can do nothing without me. Jesus is savage, y'all. We like to think that Jesus said all these nice, pretty, fluffy things. Jesus literally said, these are his words, not Jason Parrish's words. You can do nothing without me. So if that's the case, if we can do nothing without him, then we have, to, we have to look at this issue of soul restoration through the lens of that reality. We have to look at it through the lens of, okay, I'm not going to be able to find healing on my own. My soul is not going to be restored on my own. Y'all with me still? I'm not going to be able to do the work that only God can do. And so I believe right here in Psalm 23, King David lines out for us what it is that God does. Because here's the problem with with. I think humanity as a whole, but especially now in our culture today, I think it's been across the course of humanity, but especially today, is that we try to do things to make things happen instead of stopping and realizing that Christ has to first do something. Many of us have become Christian workaholics trying to make our journey of faith into something, and we've yet to submit to the one who actually does it. And this is important to know because I know some of, where are my A-type personalities in the room right now? A-type, one, two, three, A, B, C. Oh, there's a few of you. That's why you're at the 1245. Okay, so um, <laughs> where, where are my creative people and, right, like everything, you're abstract. That's kind of like me, right? Um, for the A-types, we love rules and regulations. One, two, three, A, B, C. And some of you have even been in a message where you're like, okay, tell me what to do now. You're going to be so frustrated at this message. Because not one of these things is what you do. Every single point that I have to share with you today is what God does. And so here's the scary part for all of us today, is you have to come to the table with faith today. Because there's not an actionable item that you do in this. Every single thing that we're about to read is what God does. Everybody shout, God does it. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, God does it. Turn back to them and say, don't talk to me again, I'm I'm listening. All right, Psalm 23. We're going to go through nine different things that the psalmist shows us with statements that he makes. Does that work for everybody today? Yeah. All right, need your help. Every shot number one. one. So here's the first thing that we need to understand. He restores my soul through assessed dependence. King David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. To say that the Lord is my shepherd is making an assessment that you and I are sheep. How many of you could do that today with a little bit of confidence? Or how many of you would say in moments of life to say that I'm a sheep, that's semi-offensive? Because you're like, I'm better than that. Have you seen a sheep? Nah. (laughs) King David in all of his splendor and all of his might and all of his glory with all of his majesty as king, was able to say, you, O God, are my shepherd. He restores my soul through assessed dependence. Mark chapter 8, 34 through 37, this is what Jesus says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The theologian John Calvin said this, for as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves, the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom than to follow the Lord wherever he leads. Let this then be the first step to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. See, David was setting up a, he was setting up a ladder in his life, a a tiered approach to his faith. And this was the first step by saying, God, 
You are Lord, you are shepherd of my life. You are the highest priority, you are the highest leader, you are the greatest authority of my life. For the king of everything, for David in in, in his bigness to be able to say, God, you are greater. But how many of you would agree with me that times in life we find ourselves saying that we are greater than God? The minute we take control, we said, God, I'm bigger than you. The minute we try to make things happen on our own, God, I'm, I'm bigger than you. The minute we try to cut corners to get our way, we're saying, God, I'm bigger than you. Whenever I try to make things happen that aren't in his timing or his will, come on, how many times have we said, oh, it's the Lord's will. Oh, it's the Lord's timing. Really, it wasn't. You just got really good at manipulating things. The question I want to ask us is like King David, can we say, God, you are my shepherd? But here's the question I want to ask us. When did you and I come to believe that Christ was and is not sufficient for us? What took place? What made that happen? What hurt? What, what wound? What situation? What circumstance caused you to back up and go, I don't know if God's sufficient. Come on, can we talk real in church today? Because this is what many of us are dealing with. The, the, The premise of this series has come out of an overflow of conversations that myself and many of our team and our pastors have had with people as I start to hear and listen to some of the concerns that are in our hearts and in our lives and things that are going on. And the thing I start to recognize is that there's a lot of us running around right now who have yet to say, God, you are my shepherd. It's a place of humility to say, God, you have to lead me because if I do it myself, I'm going to jack some things up. In the 1800s, a Christian evangelist by the name of George Mueller of Bristol, England, wrote this. He said, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. I wonder if any of us can say that today. That I've died to myself that he is the shepherd and the overseer of my soul. David knew what it meant to die to himself and become led by the shepherd. And the first part of the restoration journey is an acknowledgement of Jesus as our shepherd, as to who he is as Lord and Savior. But here's the problem. Many of us have made Jesus our friend, not our shepherd. We've moved him down to peer level, like buddy Jesus. We would much rather give him a fist pump than lift our hands to him. Because he's, he's my friend. And if it's your friend, how many of you have friends? You can take their counsel or not take their counsel. Come on, can we talk in church today? How many of your friends you can pass off and be like, oh, that's just their opinion? And what's interesting is that we, we move that into our relationship with God. A shepherd doesn't ask the opinion of the sheep. When was the last time you saw that? A shepherd like, hey, sheep, what do y'all want to do today? Hey, sheep, how do you feel about this food? Hey, sheep, how do you feel about this path? Hey, sheep, how do you feel about this weather outside? Am I talking to anybody in church today? He's our Shepherd. So the first part of soul restoration, and we can't go crazy deep into these because we've got nine of them to get through, but we've got to assess that first and foremost, he's our shepherd. I'm being led by him. It's a place of humility. Number two, everybody shot number two? two. Here's the second thing that David says. He says he restores my soul through necessary rest. How do we know he says that? This is his statement. He makes me lie down. Mark chapter two, 27 through to 28, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Everybody shout rest. rest. Come on, everybody shout rest. rest. What a word. When used, it elicits a lot of different emotions, doesn't it? Feelings, thoughts, ideas. For some of us, it's greatly desired. Some of you right now are like, oh, rest. I just, I need some rest. Right? Yet for others, it's actually greatly rejected. You don't even know how to rest. You don't know what to do with yourself if you couldn't say these words, I'm busy. How we handle the subject of rest says a lot about who we are in relationship to the shepherd. I have met and know people that refuse to rest and refuse to Sabbath. 
And usually it comes from a misplaced form of identity assessment, meaning if I'm not doing something, then I'm not anything. See, to rest, to Sabbath, means that we are not only acknowledging the Lord as our shepherd, but we are obedient to him as well. This is why David said he makes me lie down in green pastures. The structure of the psalm is, is a way of helping us understand that he's not forcing us. It's not like he's taking us by the necks and saying, you will lie, right? That's not, he's not putting his foot on us. What he's saying is that he is making space. He is making room for us to rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. When the shepherd is leading the sheep, the sheep can never go in front of him. And many of us are trying to pray hyperactive prayers to get God to move faster than what he wants to move because he knows that your soul needs rest. And you're frustrated because he's saying slow and you're like, fast, slow, fast, slow, fast. And that's the pace. Some of us can't even be quiet in our prayer time. It's just rapid fire machine gun stuff that you need and you want and you desire. And he's like, can you just shh? I think sometimes the greatest reason why we try to talk over God is because we don't want to hear what he really wants to say. Because you know, if you're quiet for a second, he's going to say, you need to slow your roll, bud. So he didn't, <laughs> you want that promotion so bad. And he's like, if, if that promotion happens, if I allow it, it will destroy your soul. Lie down for a second. You want that relationship so bad. And you're like, God, you're petitioning. I, I, I just, I want to be in relationship. I want to be married. I want to be this. I want to be that. And he's like, listen, if you had that, it would destroy your soul. Lie down. So then we have to decide, do I take the shepherd's lead or do I go make it happen myself? Because listen, friend, you can make it happen yourself for sure. You can get out there, you can get that relationship, you can get that promotion, you can get that, you can get that, you can get that. But the question is, did the shepherd lead you there or did you skip out? He makes me lie down. Sabbath is a place that we rest and, and, and rest is needed for it. And I'm not talking vacation rest. Come on, we all wanna be on a beach somewhere, let's go. <laughs> but I'm not talking about that type of rest. I'm talking the rest that you find when you Sabbath, when you pause and do what St. Francis of Assisi would say, wear the world like a loose garment. And some of us have the world, we're holding on to it. We want it to be a tight garment. And he's saying, no, no, Sabbath allows you to hold it loosely. Or maybe a better way to say it is this, Sabbath is the green pasture designed by God to give us rest from our concrete world. You lay down in green pastures. Number three, everybody shout number three. Three. Here's the third thing. He restores my soul through proper nourishment, green pastures and still waters. So he says lie down, but the place that he's making us lie down doesn't just provide rest for us, but it also provides nourishment, food for our lives. So up on the screen, what you see, the team did an incredible job with this. Meredith, who's our uh, creative arts director and uh, communications director, she took my points and uh, I asked her if we can make them a little bit different. So instead of one, two, three, A, B, C today, you get these cool little icons. I want to encourage you to take a picture because this might help remind you what Psalm 23 is about. And we're going to post it this week as well so you'll be able to get it. But this is how soul restoration takes place. There's assessed dependence. He is my shepherd. There's necessary rest. He makes me lie down. There's proper nourishment. It's where he puts me, green pastures and still waters. John chapter 6, 30 through 35. Everybody love their Bible? Yes. says this, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? So those who were standing in front of Jesus were saying, you need to do a magic trick so we believe in your power. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You have to see it as a little bit of an attitude. It was condescending as they were speaking to Jesus. As it is written, so now they're telling Jesus how it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They were a little stunned. Then they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread. 
And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. What a statement. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What comes to your mind when I say nourishment? David would use the very real picture of green pastures and, and still waters, not wind-blown, arid and parched land, not, not stagnant and tepid waters, but rather lush and, and green, nourishing pastures and water that was teeming with life. It was clean and it was refreshing. What comes to your mind when I say nourishment? You see, our soul is not looking for pizza. <laughs> it's needing the bread of life. Our soul is not healed with organic yogurt and free-range chicken and Himalayan lentils. The nourishment of the soul is found in the one who says, eat of me and drink of me and you will never hunger and thirst again. Come on, is anybody thankful for Jesus? See, the nourishment that is needed for the healing and restoration of the soul is found in the bread of life, the living waters of Jesus. So he says, lie here, take nourishment, that nourishment's found in him. Number four, better shout number four. He restores my soul through right pathways. This is when the psalmist says that you lead me on paths of righteousness. This one is not popular in our world right now, okay? So don't shoot the messenger, take it up with Jesus, okay? <laughs> Hebrews chapter four, 12 through 13 says this, the word of God is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through to 17, all scripture, all scripture. Come on, everybody shout all. 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 Did you hear the word? Yeah. All. <laughs> Just belabor this. All scripture, not portions, not one testament over the other testament, not one letter or another letter. Come on, let's go. Not, not revelation over Genesis or Genesis over Ephesians. All scripture is breathed out by God. What's it for? It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may com be complete and equipped for every good work. Good. One more, Psalm 119, 105. I love this one. Your word is a lamp to my feet, and guess what? A light unto my path. The understanding of right paths or paths of righteousness is that there is, unpopular statement, here it comes, a right way and a wrong way. I know, that one's not tweetable. Come on, someone shout right way. Have a shot wrong way. way. There is a right way. According to scripture, there is a right way and a wrong way. Not a gray way. Come on. Not a pay way. I'm getting, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting hungry. Um, when it comes to the word of God, the Lord is our shepherd, our soul is restored as we yield to this truth that he leads us on paths of righteousness. See, but many of us have allowed our soul baptized and formed by the liquid paths of this secular age. Our souls have been programmed by this digital Babylon, informed by incomplete images meant to entice the immediacy of feeling and euphoria, yet leaving us debased, shattered, and broken. Incomplete paths. These paths not designed for the sake of our but paths of frustration, humiliation, and annihilation. These paths have opened our souls to the addiction of vengeance and retribution, retaliation, tribalism, and hatred. These secular paths have dissected us at a soul level and have left us to bleed out and therefore dependent upon a constant transfusion of self-indulgence in order to keep some sort of life flowing to the deadening faculties and appendages of our self. In his work, Finally Alive, John Piper writes this, my feelings are not God. Amen. God is God. Yeah. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. Yeah. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives and sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. Yeah. 
When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth in Jesus' name. See, the truth is that there's a right way and the shepherd of our souls leads us down that path. He doesn't make it optional to us. This is what's happening in, in, in what is other philosophers would call liquid modernity right now. The idea that in our generation, we have somehow come to the conclusion that the imperfect reality of my feelings and my perceptions and my space defines what is truthful. Instead of allowing truth to be shaped by a constant word, his word, the word of truth that created all things. Now, I know for some of us, that's a massive proposition because you're not there yet when it comes to what you believe on these things. But I just want to let you know that here at the well, we preach the full counsel of God's word. We don't leave any of it out. The hard bits, the soft bits, the fun bits, the not so fun bits, because it's his truth that leads us down paths of righteousness. And as I find myself on the right path, my soul is restored because I, 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 I come to find myself feeling and experiencing the goodness of his nature. Right paths. Number five, everybody shout number five. He restores my soul through personal intimacy. This is when David says, you are with me. Now, I'm not gonna have anybody raise your hands, but like just catalog this for a moment with me. How many of you would potentially agree with me that the word intimacy can be hard sometimes? That's, that's a terrifying word. For many of us, it's a terrifying word because of what has happened to us, the things that we've experienced, the woundings that we've talked about last, last week. So intimacy is difficult. Um, Eric and I actually tell this very openly, so I'm not going to share anything that I haven't shared before. In pre-marriage class, Dr. La uh, <laughs> Howie's been there, Dr. Lori's been there, um, and others. Um, Eric and I came from very different backgrounds before we got married. Her family talked very openly about, about certain things. Um, especially where it came to like sex and intimacy, so on and so forth. My family, on the other hand, <laughs> mum's the word. We didn't talk very openly about things. And so there were like, there were dinners when we were dating and engaged that I would sit, I'd be like, what are we talking about at the dinner table right now? <laughs> it was all out there. It still is sometimes. <laughs> and then so when we got married, as Eric and I started like discussing things, and if you've met my wife before and had a conversation, like she doesn't hold, like she didn't keep punches back. She just says what's like, here you go. And so there was moments when we first got married, I was like, huh? What are we talking about right now? She's like, we're like, this is intimacy. It's like, like talking about things, examining things and, and, and really speaking truthfully about things. I was like, what? No. Over the course of our marriage, 18 years now, we've been able to know each other. And intimacy, so we're very clear, is more than just sex and sexuality and physicality, okay? It's what David would say. He'd say, you are with me. Yeah. No, 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 come on. Yeah. You are with me. Yeah. Now listen to how the psalm talks about what it means to have God with us. Psalm 139. Can I read 18 verses of scripture? Okay. This is what it says. And if I get a little bit pumped about this, just go with it, okay? Because this is so beautiful. Listen to this. If you are struggling in your mind and your heart right now about who you are, whether there's a plan or a purpose for your life, whether you're worth anything, listen to this scripture. Yes. Oh, Lord. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That ought to freak some of us out. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You ever been there before? You feel like you're being chased down by God? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake and I I am still with you. Come on, church, that's scripture. That's our Bible. That is the word of God. David is saying, man, you, you're up in my space, God. Now, that's scary for some of us because we feel some sort of way about the stuff that's going on in us. So intimacy is hard. Intimacy is hard for us as people in general. I know it's hard for guys. But look at who David was. He was king. Right? Now, I'm not promoting when I say this next bit some sort of weird masculinity thing or anything like that. Let's just take David for who he is. Context, people. Okay? He was a king. He fought lions. He fought bears. He killed giants and cut off their head. He was the man. But he also played a harp. He also wrote poems. He also was able to say, you are my shepherd. And you are with me. He wasn't so disconnected from the personal space of who he was that he couldn't have an intimate relationship with God. And we saw that play out in other parts of his life as he would have intimacy and friendships. Now, sometimes his desire for intimacy went a little too far. He did some stupid stuff. But we don't see a block in this. Is this all right if I talk this way with you? He didn't see a block. We didn't see anything shallowing that out. He was an intimate person he understood. And some of us need to get to that space. And it's not just guys, it's girls too. Because some of you girls are fighting bears and lions and killing giants and chopping heads off. (laughs) The girls think, yay! So good, sister. Uh, this has been an issue for me a couple years back and I tell the story we've talked about this I've told this story in each of the services today and I say this not to garner any type of awe I want you to hear it because it's the best way I can say with my personal life I want to be a a pastor who speaks personally about things so a couple years back now my brother passed away uh, in a tragic accident. And I remember the hospital room was myself and Alicia and Pastor Seth and Kaisa and a few others were in there. Parents were in there. Just a few of us um, at the time of the pronouncement of death. And it was a hard, it was a hard moment. Gut-wrenching, obviously. It's my younger brother. And, and so we're standing there and we're getting ready for the pronouncement. <clears throat> And Erica leans over to me. This is how much my wife knows me. And this is why I love her to death. She leans over to me. In this moment, you would think there was a million and one things that she can do. Again, this is why I love my wife. In this moment, she leans over to me. In everything that's going on, she leans over into my ear. And she goes, hey, babe, you you need to cry this one out. Don't do what you do. And she knows what I do and what I was trying to do in that moment and had been doing for the past couple of days. I got this. My family needs me. I got to be strong in this moment. So she said, don't, don't do that weird thing that you do where you don't allow him to be your shepherd. And it was in that moment that I realized a couple different things. The first one is this, is that 
in what ensued after the pronouncement, it was a visceral reaction as I stepped back and said, okay, God, you know me. And everybody in that room was there. And I didn't care what anybody else thought either. A couple things happened. One, I made him my shepherd in that moment. And number two, I stepped away from trying to be everybody else's. So that God could have his rightful place in their lives as well. Can I tell you something, church? I'm your pastor, but I'm not the shepherd of your soul. There's only one that that title is reserved for, and his name is Jesus. He's the shepherd and overseer of our, of our souls. And he's given us as pastors a responsibility to do the best that we can as we lead and counsel and preach his word. But can I tell you that we will let you down. Humans will let you down. But the shepherd of your soul who knits you together will never, have never. So that's why David says the next thing. He says, that he restores my soul through sovereign protection. Your rod and your staff guide me. They comfort me. Now, many of us, if we're really honest, we've heard this taught a bad way. We've heard it taught from the perspective that his rod and his staff, they beat me. Right? Come on, how many of you grew up in that, maybe that faith tradition where it's like, hey, he's your shepherd. He's got a rod and a staff. He's going to get you with it. But David says it comforts me. Why? Well, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, listen to this scripture. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you, and he will guard you against the evil one. Yeah. See, many of us right now can be like, hey, well, how is it that God has protected me because I've experienced all of these things? It's a valid argument. I totally get it. Can we look at it a different way? Have you ever thought about what he's actually protected you from never experienced because he's a good shepherd? Right. Come on, come on. Like how many of you, like, I've, I've been through some stuff. Is it possible that the stuff that you've been through, God saw fit to say, listen, I think they can handle this. If they stay connected to me, if they allow me to be the shepherd, we're going to go through things in life. We live in a fallen world. But I've got to think about all the things that he has sovereignly protected me from that I never experienced because he's the shepherd standing out in front of the sheep and with his rod and his staff, they comfort me because he's using that thing to fight off other evils that are coming my way that I will never know about. That's the goodness of his protection. Come on, parents. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you like parents? We, when we're out and like, I remember when we were in Disneyland with our kids, right? And they don't think anything is going on, right? They're just wandering around Disneyland with their little, with their hot dog and their funnel cake. They're having the grand old time, Mickey and fairies and yeah, and yeah, right? And mom and dad are like, he looks weird. She looks weird. Run, right? <laughs> they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. They're just in the... <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. This is why parents are exhausted after they get back from Disneyland. Because we've spent seven days stressing our life out for all the evils that could be done to our kids. Oh, he's our shepherd. And he wants us to ah, just have this life. But many of us don't experience that because we avoid the protection of the shepherd. We step out from that protection because I want to do it my way. This path looks nice. He's like, don't go down that path. You're like, just don't do it. Oh, he's got, and then we say this, oh, he's got grace for me. He's got forgiveness for me. Yeah, you're right, 100%, but that past is still going to hurt you. Yep, he can say, hey, sheep, come back. And when you come back, your wool's all mangled. (laughs) Stuff's happening. Number seven, everybody shout number seven. He restores my soul through repaired identity. This is what David means when he says, you prepare a table for me. 
One of the greatest ways that we know that restoration is taking place in our soul is how we fare when we are seated in the midst of our enemies, or maybe better put, seated in the midst of opposition. How many of you agree with me that you can see there's a difference between somebody who's secure in their identity in the midst of opposition and then somebody who's not secure in their identity in the midst of opposition? This is what fascinates me about sports. Is there any sports lovers in here? Okay, a few of you. Um, that was the weirdest response from sports lovers. Usually you cheer your faces off, right? <laughs> any sports lovers? Yeah, yeah! <laughs> Pastor Seth has watched a lot of football with me, and it's become a running joke. I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. Is that literally, yeah, thank yeah, exactly, yeah! Um, <laughs> So in the first literally seven minutes of a football game, like if, if the other team scores a touchdown or does something against them, this is what I do. I'm like, oh, game's over, game's over, game's, game's over. That's my, that's my response. Here's why. Because I'm not secure in the identity of the Seahawks right now, okay? That's the bottom line. I have no idea what's going to happen. Oh, there was a day. Come on, right? There was a day when I could be secure in the identity of the Seahawks. They had Russ Wilson. They had people who could tackle anything and everybody and like murder them on the field. I was secure in that identity. And when they were on the field, I was like, yeah, we're going to win everything. And then it all changed. (laughs) I use that as an illustration to help us understand what happens when we understand who we are in Christ. We can be seated at the table in front of our opposition. Or when I am not secure in my identity in Christ, sitting at that table is really difficult for me. And I will figure out any way possible to protect myself, be offensive, be defensive, take the first swipe. Max Licato said it like this. He said, revenge is natural, not spiritual. Getting even is the rule of the jungle. Giving grace is the rule of the kingdom. As God restores our soul, we begin to adopt a kingdom identity. And when I have a kingdom identity, then it changes my disposition. And I'm seated at the table of my enemies. I wrote this down in between services, so this is just special for you guys today. Broken identities serve the kingdom of self. Think about that. Broken identities serve the kingdom of self. Repaired identities because of soul restoration serves the kingdom of God. And it's an upside down kingdom and it looks very different than the world in which we live in. Number eight, every shot, number eight. He restores my soul through the work of the spirit. This is when David says he anoints my head with oil. Okay, I'm not gonna spend any time on this one because we did a whole series on the Holy Spirit. And so I literally put in my notes for you, go to the Holy Spirit series and you can understand what that means, okay? I wanna get to this last one, number nine. Every shot, number nine. We did it. He restores my soul through familial belonging. This is when David says that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, as you can see on the screen, is that soul restoration first is taking place when there's an assessed dependence, a realization he's my shepherd where there's necessary rest taking place, he makes me lie down. Where there's proper nourishment, he's the bread of life. Whoever drinks of him will never be thirsty again, still waters. Right pathways, paths of righteousness, truthful places and spaces that we're walking down and he's leading us on. Personal intimacy, you are with me, God. Sovereign protection, your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me, they guide me, they're warding off evil. Repaired identity. That I, knows, I know whose I am, and I can sit at this table in the midst of opposition. The work of the Spirit, he anoints my head with oil. The Holy Spirit works in me in this last one. David makes an assessment about familial belonging, dwelling in the house of the Lord. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 through to 22. It says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. In Christ, church, you need to hear this today. He gives us a new family to be a part of and belong to. It's the body of believers, the body of Christ, God's household. There's something powerful 
when we come together, when brothers dwell together in unity. Now I know for some of us right now, it's like, well, yeah, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say the church is great. Can I tell you that if I wasn't a pastor, I'd still say it because David said it. This is what's lined out. This is the assessment. Is it perfect in here? No. Why? Because you're here. (laughs) Uh, Me too. It wasn't meant to be perfect. It was meant to show the process of sanctification. Meant to show the process of being led by the shepherd. Here's what I love. Maybe this is the weirdest imagery that you can have and just bring it into church next weekend. But this place is a sheep pen for all of us sheep to gather together and come in here and all of our, yeah, yeah. How was your week? Yeah. And then we worship our shepherd. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> That's what this is. That's why we say it's not about the four walls. It's not about this place. It's the dwelling place of God's people. And that's why the psalmist would say, better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. I would much rather be in the house of the Lord. So today I offer you this journey of soul restoration. And we'll talk over the next few weeks about the practicalities of what you and I can do, the things that we engage in in the process, but we cannot go there until we first understand what God does. By faith, he's our shepherd. So, some of us have been writing our life. Others have written on our life. We so badly want to be able to shake it and it all disappear. But remember, it's not an Etch-a-Sketch. So the question is, will I hand it to the shepherd? And will he begin to write on it? Because all the things that seem unbalanced, narrow, crooked, messy, when the shepherd begins to write, That's when goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shout it. Amen. I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes in this moment. Jesus, we worship you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around right now. And there's many of us in here today who said yes to the, to the shepherd of our soul, but I wonder if there's a few of us in here today who have yet to say yes to him. And if that's you today, we're going to pray a prayer together. And There's nothing fancy in these words, but rather the heart from which these words come today. So if you'd say, man, Jason, that's me. I need to say yes. I need to make Jesus the shepherd of my soul. Make this your prayer today. We're going to do it out loud all together so we don't leave anybody out. So as loud as you can, would you just repeat these words after me? Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me, for giving me new life. And today I am deciding to follow the shepherd of my soul. In Jesus' mighty name.